Welcome to Neighborly. The Faceless. House number 32. Little Street. Ezra Mackenzie had first been introduced to the unnatural when he was a child. He was fourteen at the time, old enough to no longer believe in magic, but young enough to still be intrigued by the world. His family had just moved to a bigger house, the extra space needed now that he was going to be an older brother. At first, Ezra had been stoically against the idea, both of having a younger sibling and of moving away, but his parents had managed to convince him by letting him pick which room he wanted for his bedroom and for his playroom. Stubbornly, he had argued that it wouldn't be a playroom, it would be a games room. Playrooms were for children, and he was certainly not a child. Picking a bedroom had been easy. Picking a games room had been even easier. As soon as he'd seen the stairs leading up to the converted attic room, he had bagseated with an excited yell. It was perfect, and it would be years before his soon-to-be baby sibling would be able to clamber up the stairs and get to his muddled. Once they were properly moved in and everything was unpacked, he spent more time in the attic room than anywhere else, and it was there that it happened. There was a man in the attic, holding one of his favourite model planes. He had yelled at the man, and to his surprise the man disappeared. A yelp of a noise left the figure, and then the figure left Ezra's sight. Ezra swore he was a teenager, he knew what swear words were when his plane quickly landed back on its shelf. It had taken weeks for him to catch another glimpse of the ghost, and even longer to convince it that Ezra was intrigued, not angry, and didn't intend to hurt it. Not that he was sure he even could. Eventually, they became friends. Ezra learned that the man had been a pilot, and had been admiring his models because he missed flying, something he could never do again, what with being dead and all. The pilot in the attic was his secret, and now, years later, they are still friends. He got the house when his parents passed, his younger sibling having moved away soon after they'd finished college. Ezra and his ghost do not live on Little Street, but it does. Forgive me, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that later. Ezra likes collecting things. He's not quite so interested in muddled planes anymore, but his collection still remains in the attic, for obvious reasons. His partner, a doctor by the name of Coleridge, likes collecting things too. And he's vaguely aware that if they ever do move in together, they're going to need a lot of space. Nowadays, his collection consists mostly of knowledge. The room that his sibling had grown up in is a library now. Three of the four walls contain bookcases, upon which sit books that in turn contain all the information Ezra has collected over the years. It all pertains to the same subject. The unhuman, the inhuman, the supernatural, whatever you'd like to call it. I'm sure you know what I mean. His fascination began with a see-through friend. It carried him through his life, and now it's the reason he's so frequently on Little Street. It's the reason he's got a purpose in life 
and the reason he's got a loving partner. It's also the reason he's currently crouched between two incredibly ripe bins, watching a freshly faceless man get bundled into a van. If this were a movie, the van would have S-I-D-E-S -E printed on it somewhere, with some pithy little quote about how they're working to make the world a better place. Ezra would have been able to give the word to his contacts, shady though some of them are, and a few months later, they would have got back to his home with the barest amount of information about it. Or he would have gone back to number 10 Little Street, mumbling to himself about what sides could be, and completely miss how still Coleridge had got until the doctor was spiralling dangerously into a panic attack. But this isn't a movie. The van is unmarked, and the number plates are most likely fake, and the men in the front seats are plain but strong-looking, like a pair of cartoon henchmen. The van doesn't screech away, but instead trundles off inconspicuously, as if the two within had stopped for a quick cigarette rather than a quick kidnapping. Perhaps corpse-snapping is a more appropriate term for it. Ezra doesn't follow them. His bike is too loud, and too parked in his driveway for it to be of any use in an early morning chase, and he knows following won't actually get him anywhere, as somehow... They always seem to disappear. After ensuring that the coast is clear, he peels himself away from the bins and begins a beeline towards Little Street, aware that there is nothing more to be done, and that Coleridge will probably be waking soon, early riser that he is. He had missed it, again. The thing that steals faces. It was gone by the time he'd found the faceless fellow, and he'd only managed a few minutes of investigation before he'd heard the steady rumble of the van approaching. He'd first caught wind of it over a year ago. A contact, who he only knew as Zoo, got in touch, asking what he knew about the thing that steals faces. He'd known nothing, and it took him a good while to find out anything of note. And now he's close. So close. But still can't get the damn thing. Not that he's entirely sure what to do when he's found it. Ezra ruminates on this as he turns into Little Street, frustratingly dragging his hand through his hair. He wasn't responsible for the thing's victims, but that didn't mean he didn't feel like he was. Another life lost, and he hadn't been able to stop it. When Coleridge's house comes into view, he forces the thoughts to the back of his mind, deciding instead to focus on what's good. He is mere moments away from a gentle kiss, a loving smile, and a headbutt to the shin. He could probably do without the last one, but that's simply how Angelo communicates. Furry little bastard. As predicted, the doctor is already awake, freshly showered and nibbling on some toast. Ezra receives his greeting. He lingers on the kiss, threads a hand through damp curls, and wishes he could simply stay in this moment forever. Not have to think about unnatural creatures, and faceless corpses, and unmarked vans, and... He sighs against smiling lips, and then crouches to give Angelo a scratch behind the ear. The sun rises, and with it, so does Coleridge. Ezra sleepily demands a kiss before turning over and falling back to sleep, only to awaken properly a few hours later when his phone chimes. The number is withheld. The message is simple. The Faceless, it reads, 33 Little Street. Well, isn't that interesting? Ezra is up like a shot. He clambers down the stairs, pulling on his clothes as he goes and heading for the door. He yells a quick, WORK! in response to Coleridge's concerned call of his name, knowing that just the one word will suffice. The doctor doesn't know exactly what he does, but he has some idea. An earnest, BE SAFE, catches Ezra's attention as the door shuts behind him.
It's just a normal house. 33 is just a normal house, at least in Little Street terms. Ezra stares up at the door and for a split second considers just knocking it, but quickly dismisses that plan as a surefire way to get his face stolen. Instead, he creeps around the side of the house, makes note of the windows and possible entrances. He's just about to peek through one when he hears a door and footsteps and looks to see the resident of the house walking away. They look normal. They just look like a person. Ezra seizes the opportunity. Another few moments of looking and there, an unlocked window. He tilts the thing open and hoists himself into the house and steps foot in what is most likely a kitchen. It's got all the appropriate utensils, after all, but they are old, rusted, and dusty, and look like they haven't been used in years, decades, maybe. Keeping his tread light, he sneaks his way through the house. The rest of it is in a similar state, rooms that looked lived in, though not for a long time, like whoever lived here previously just left one day, and the thing took their place. Given how the face sealer worked, you wouldn't be surprised if that was in fact the case. There is one room, however, that looks frequented. The door is silent as he pulls it open, and for a moment he stops, stares, and feels sick. It immediately becomes apparent that it does not eat the faces it steals, or absorb them, or whatever a faceless thing does for nutrition. The wall before Ezra makes it very, very clear that that is not the case. The wall that faces him, well, <laughs> it faces him. Jars line the wall, resting on shelves in each other, so many that some could have been placed on the floor. Some bigger than others, some with labels scrubbed off, some still branded. And within each jar is a face. Rows upon rows of unblinking eyes stare at him, mouths slack with a lack of muscle gape at him. And he gapes and stares back. He's not sure what he expected, but this certainly wasn't it. It's like they're being pickled and preserved and put on display like some sick hunter's collection. Ezra knows he should just leave. He knows where it lives now. He can leave and come back more prepared. Just as he decides what to do and starts to turn around, he freezes. One of the faces stares at him. Through him, almost. Its eyes are sullen and sad its mouth open in a silent scream. He knows that face. He only saw them last month. They caught up over a pint at the local, laughing about their teenage escapades and promising to meet up again soon. And you can tell me more about this doctor of yours, they had said before heading off. He'd meant to text them, but hadn't got around to it. And now here they are, nothing but a face in a jar. There is no time to mourn, however. The telltale noise of a door opening and closing alerts him to the return presence of the thing. Panic surges through him, his chest feeling ecstatic for a moment before he pushes it down. Leaving the room is not an option. Not if the approaching footsteps mean what he's sure they do. He darts to the corner of the room, crouches behind an overturned armchair, and waits. It looks 
just like a person. Like a normal, human person. There's not even an obvious scene where the face it's wearing meets its flesh. A monster hidden in plain sight. Not for the first time. Ezra wonders where the hell these things come from. Wonders how many there are, and just how many people they've killed. Somewhere, there is a testing facility that has the answers to some of his questions, but Ezra doesn't get to know that. His partner still dreams about it, still wakes up gasping from nightmares that Ezra doesn't get to know about. Not yet. Coleridge is not ready to share. The thing before him reaches for its own face, or rather, someone else's face. Blunted fingernails dig into its temples, and it tears. Suddenly, Ezra is glad he didn't get a chance to eat this morning. He swallows down a wretch, bile burning at his throat as he watches skin and muscle rip, and spies smooth bone beneath a shockingly bloodless wound. The flap of flesh is dropped unceremoniously into an empty jar, and the thing reaches for another. Oops. The thing makes a noise, a screeching howl that skitters its way through Ezra's body and makes his hair stand on end. How such a noise could come from a featureless thing, who knows? But Ezra really doesn't want to stick around to find out. It is between him and the door, however he is painfully aware that if he leaves there will only be more death to follow. If he doesn't at least try, before another thought can flicker through his brain, the chair before him is cast aside, thrown across the room as the thing roars. It cracks against the far wall, the force of it juddering the room and making the collection of jars clink against each other, making a sound like bells. It would be a beautiful sound if it weren't corpse parts making it. Ezra doesn't hesitate. He dives at the thing, catches it off guard moments before it attempted to jump at him and pin him down and peel away his face. He manages to knock it off balance, and the two of them tumble backwards, Ezra's exerted grunts mixing in a pain song with the faceless howling in the tinkling jars. He can't take a moment to think, can't risk it gaining the upper hand, because if it does, then it's all over for him, and for many others. Determined that he will return to Colverge's side, he hits the thing. Whether or not the thing can be hurt like a human, Ezra does not know, but that doesn't stop him from fighting it as if his life depends on it. Which, of course, it does. It writhes and claws at him, blunted fingernails somehow leaving deep scratches upon his cheek as it tries to add his face to its collection. A satisfying crack rings through the room as he twists an unnatural arm away from him, and as the thing howls in pain, he grabs it by its head, lifts it, and then slams it back into the hard floor. He hits it again and it screams again, and his ears ring. He slams it down once more, puts his full weight into it, and screams as he does so, desperation making his eyes water. It stills. There is silence. Ezra slumps to the floor, gasping for breath as he stares at the creature. Its skull is caved in, and yet there is no blood. Its wounds remain clean. He takes a moment, gathers himself as much as he can before struggling to his feet. He hurts. God, he hurts. But the job isn't done yet. The garden is overgrown and derelict, but it is easy enough to find space. He finds a shovel in a tangle of weeds and gets to work. 
A bird watches him impassively as he digs. He buries the faces, tells each of them he is sorry none of them were saved. Sorry that he hadn't gotten there faster. Though not religious, he murmurs a prayer, hoping for peace for those lost. He wipes the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. The house and the thing within burn. A few hours later, after the firemen have been and gone, an unmarked van stops outside the ruins. The men within don't get out. They make a note, take a picture, and then drive away. Coleridge patches him up, as he always does. He presses butterfly kisses along his skin and does not ask what or who, as Ezra mourns. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Today's House was written by Andrew Mercator, with dialogue editing by Kit Robson, soundscaping by Matthew O.K. Smith, music by Alex Schwartz, and art by Cloudy Art. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and who knows, eventually God might finally listen to us. Today's love letter is from the Cambrian Explosion. It urges you to remember. You must remember. In the core of yourselves, please, it begs you to remember. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.